But for some reason, I began wondering whether any Buddhist monks played basketball. Welcome to Sauce Talk, a podcast about sports and meditation and being an athlete and a former athlete and how all of this relates to living a well-lived life. This is Billy Hansen. I'm going to start today's podcast by talking about peak experiences in sports. And I think a good place to start is a quote from Bill Russell's memoir called Second Wind. And he writes here, Every so often, a Celtics game would heat up so that it became more than a physical or even mental game and would be magical. That feeling is difficult to describe, and I certainly never talked about it when I was playing. When it happened, I could feel my play rise to a new level. It came rarely and would last anywhere from five minutes to a whole quarter or more. Three or four plays were not enough to get it going. It would surround not only me, but the other team and even the referees. At that special level, all sorts of odd things happened. The game would be in the white heat of competition, and yet somehow I wouldn't even feel competitive, which is a miracle in itself. I'd be putting out the maximum effort, straining, coughing up parts of my lungs as we ran, and yet I never felt any pain. The game would move so quickly that every fake, cut, and pass would be surprising, and yet nothing could surprise me. It was almost as if we were playing in slow motion. During those spells, I could almost sense how the next play would develop and where the next shot would be taken. Even before the other team brought the ball in bounds, I could feel it so keenly that I'd want to shout to my teammates, it's coming there, except that I knew everything would change if I did. My premonitions would be consistently correct, and I always felt then that I not only knew all the Celtics by heart, but also the opposing players, and that they all knew me. There have been many times in my career when I felt moved or joyful, but these were the moments when I had chills pulsing up and down my spine. He goes on a bit later. On the five or ten occasions when the game ended at this special level, I literally did not care who had won. If we lost, I'd still be as free and high as a Skyhawk. So what Bill Russell is describing here sounds kind of like what the peak of a mushroom trip feels like. And I don't pretend that I ever reached that level of focus and flow in basketball. But I can certainly relate to some of what he's saying. And I've certainly had my experiences where the game, you seem to melt into the game and be emerged into it. And all of a sudden, when the whistle blows and you go over for timeout, you realize that you've totally lost track of what the score is or how you're playing or how many shots you've taken. And it can be kind of a jarring feeling to, to realize that you've actually just been completely immersed in the game for however long it's been. And I'd say the closest thing that has ever happened to me that I would call kind of like a spiritual experience in basketball was in my final game as a senior. Um, I actually, there have been other final games that I feel like I mishandled. Like my final game in high school, I, I, I was so wrapped up in it and it was almost like I was trying to manufacture the profundity or intensity of it and it almost just took away from it. And like I needed it to be bigger than it was and, and my trying to force it took away from that that game I actually missed a dunk that night and we lost by one <laughs> so in my last game in college I actually just felt really grateful for the, the, the great season that I had and I truly just felt grateful that I was going to get one last chance to play and to compete 
and I went through my normal pregame routine. I drank my coffee and I meditated before the game, just as I always had done all year long, and played the game as I normally would have. And somewhere, you know, towards the end of the game, I we came over to the bench and I was exhausted. I think we were down by six or seven. And as I sat down, I had this incredibly strange feeling rise up in me that all of a sudden I realized that all of I'd spent I played so many games and I'd been so dedicated to this game my whole life and that this was the last section I'd ever play in and I had I felt this really deep gratitude for the entire journey including all of the miseries I experienced as a as a sophomore when I when basketball was making me miserable and depressed and actually forcing me to grow up and to transform in many ways and not only that, but I, I looked down to the other team who was also engaged in their huddle, waiting for the coaches to come in. And I realized that every single one of their players was just as committed to their craft and loved the game of basketball just as much as I did. And they had their own stories and tri- triumphs and uh, tribulations and ups and downs. And I all of a sudden just felt this incredible, like tingling sensation of gratitude for the even the obstacles of basketball and for... I appreciated all of it, and I realized that without devastating failure, you know, the the successes and the championships wouldn't be as special. And so, that was the closest thing I ever felt to the peak experiences. But if you're interested in this stuff, into the in the overlaps between sports and flow states and peak experiences, you might check out the book uh, "In the Zone" or "Golf in the Kingdom" by Michael Murphy, and he's been studying these things passionately for decades and it's really great and so today's episode is somewhat related to this um today's episode is going to be an interview with louis lazar louis is a freelance journalist in new york and he's written for the new york times the wall street journal and the atlantic and i discovered louis when i read his article in the atlantic last year called basketball in tibet a sports unlikely ascent and I loved the article. I tweeted about it, and I sent it to anyone who I thought might be interested. And I reached out to him, and he agreed to come on the podcast. And it was really cool to talk to him about the article. And it's really about, you know, how basketball, how the game of basketball touched so many people in a place that you wouldn't expect it to. And I'll let um, I'll let him describe it to you on the podcast today. If you like the podcast, you might also like my newsletter, which is Sunday Sauce. And you can subscribe to it by going to billyhanson.net forward slash sauce. You can also help me out by giving a review on Apple Podcasts. And with that, let's get to the podcast. Here is Louis Lazar. All right, I'm here with Louis Lazar. Louis, thank you for coming on the podcast. Yeah, thanks for having me. Yeah, so why don't you first, I'll, I'll introduce you in the intro to this podcast, but can you first tell me and my listeners a little bit about yourself? Sure. Um, so I'm a writer, journalist, living in New York City, in Manhattan. I'm from originally from Chicago, from the north suburbs of Chicago, uh, and moved here about 10 years ago. Did a bunch of things, real estate, thought about law school, hmm. uh, and so I came into kind of journalism a little bit late and uh, went to uh, graduate school for journalism here in New York City. And then um, I've been freelancing as a writer for the past, you know, six, seven years or so here in New York, um, writing stories, kind of quirkier stories about interesting people. Um, 
So what is uh, the Corona situation like in Manhattan right now? How's his life pretty weird? It's weird. Yeah, it's very bizarre. It is eerie outside. I, I try to, I mean, I'm right in the epicenter of the epicenter, you know, I mean, lower Manhattan. Hmm. Um, it is, it's just very bizarre. You know, I mean, I'm for sanity's sake, I'm trying to make it outside once a day. That's kind of my goal Yeah. to go on a very brief walk. Yeah. Uh, and hopefully, you know, I, I always kind of like root for the sun to be out that day so that I can get a little bit of sunshine, which is like a huge lift. Um, yeah. but otherwise it's just being kind of like shut in here. Yeah. And I'm accustomed to working at from home because of, I primarily freelance. So, yeah. but, uh, yeah, me, me and my girlfriend were talking really, yeah. we're looking forward to the time where we can go for a walk and not have to like spray our keys with alcohol and uh, <laughs> shower as soon as we get back. It's getting kind of annoying, but we're also settling in too. But yeah, I can imagine Man- Manhattan with the, yeah, you know, New York's been hit it's, the hardest, so that must be tough. Yeah, yeah, it's more the anxiety, you know. It's like right. the anxiety of going out and then and then coming back and and ensuring that everything is sanitized and, um, you know. So it, it takes the joy out of the walk, which is like the purpose of it to begin with. You know what I mean? <laughs> exactly, exactly. <laughs> so that's the struggle. But yeah, uh, yeah. so yeah. I, I discovered you through your great piece in the Atlantic last year called "Basketball in Tibet." how Tibet is going crazy for hoops. And I, for listeners, I encourage that you read it. I'll, I'll link to it in the show notes. Um, but I want to walk through that today. So one of the first things you said in the article was, a few years ago while living in Queens, I began to mm-hmm. wonder whether any Buddhist monks played hoops. And when I read that sentence, I was like, all right, I'm hooked. I, I didn't know anyone <laughs> else like, had that thought about uh, the relationship between Buddhism and basketball. So... How did you become interested in the overlap between those two topics? Right. Yeah. So that's an awesome question. So, you know, how I come up with a lot of my stories is I'll I'll start to kind of explore something that's been on my mind for some reason, maybe subconsciously. I'm not really sure. Mm-hmm. But, you know, in this case, you know, I'm a lifelong basketball fan. And I grew up watch, you know, in Chicago, in the north suburbs of Chicago, watching the uh the 1990s bulls championship teams and michael jordan and Mm. um actually went to a few games a year like at the old chicago stadium my my cousins had season tickets um so i remember this as a very kind of mystical place like a real like basketball cathedral this is you know now they play in the united center and in the, the in the second championship run they played in this more corporate united center but previously it was it was this old smoky gym small place and so that was really cool. And my childhood was just very basketball centered. Not only was I a fan, but I played as a kid. I did like traveling basketball. I played in high school. I strongly considered playing collegiately. You know, I was recruited by like smaller schools to play um, and decided to ended up deciding to give it up. But, you know, fast forward to when I moved to New York and and about 10 years ago, this is probably actually more like five, six years ago, I I, I started developing an interest in Buddhism. Mm. Uh, I didn't do much about it. It was just like kind of like a vague curiosity. Mm. Like, but for some reason, I began wondering whether any Buddhist monks played basketball. Yeah. 
and it, and I just thought it would make a really cool story or something unusual if it if it existed. And what I found in previous stories is that if I brainstorm something, oftentimes somewhere in the world this exists, hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Um, and I'd already been interested in, in the possible intersection or relationship between basketball and religion. Hmm. Like I pre- I previously done a story about a um, I lived in Jerusalem for a year. This is around 08, 09. and I went back and I, I and I, I did a story about a mysterious kind of street ball basketball legend in the old city of Jerusalem. That's dope. I want to. Uh, I'll need to read that when we get off. The, yeah, you should look it up. Yeah, cool. and and this guy's name was Jesus. Actually, in Arabic, his name is Isa, which translates to Jesus oh, wow. in the ancient Christian quarter. And so I went on a quest for the for him. And, you know, his name was like written everywhere in the Christian quarter, like near the Church of the Holy Sepulchre. And and so any anyway, I, you know, um, back to Buddhism and basketball, living in, in New York, you know, I started wondering this, do monks play basketball? So I walked um, or I took a subway then because I lived in Queens. So I walked down to China or I, I um, walked around Chinatown where there are Buddhist temples all over the place. Mm-hmm. And I would just wander into these kind of, you know, dimly lit temples with uh, candles burning (laughs) Mm -hmm. and would like emerge out of the darkness, you know? Mm -hmm. And I'd ask them like, Hey, like, you know, are there any monks who play basketball? (laughs) 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 And I just got the most like, like flabbergasted looks, you know what I mean? Like it went nowhere. So I kind of let that go. But then something inside me kept, it just kept returning to this idea. Mm. Monks playing basketball. So I went to Google, right? Yeah. And I started uh, Googling combinations, just random combinations. Basketball, Buddhist Buddhist monk was one, you know, maybe uh, Tibetan hoops, myth, basketball, you know, whatever it was, crazy combinations of words. And... I wound up coming across this website or uh, Facebook page, it might have been, for Norla Basketball. So this kind of, uh, I guess, dovetails into how I found the story, mm-hmm. you know. Mm-hmm. Um, and this in this page, this social media page or website showed pictures of I saw monks shattering backboards and making awesome moves and like mountainside courts with sheep walking across them, mm-hmm. you know. Mm-hmm. And it's wild. Yeah. I was like, is this even real? <laughs> you know. <laughs> I was like very skeptical, <laughs> but I, um, so I reached out to the, to the, there was a contact person who in charge of these pages and, and this was Willard Johnson, Bill Johnson, who we can, I guess we can, we can talk about. He, the, the head of this program, the coach. Yeah. And he told me about, we talked, you know, I think it had to have been the middle of the night in New York time because this is Tibet time. Right. Mm. And he told me about how huge basketball is, how all the monks play and how he's the coach of the semi-professional program there. And that there was this big tournament and clinic approaching, like coming up. Mm. Like I have to go. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> so that, so then the next thing I knew I was like on a, on a plane to China and, and, and up onto the Tibetan plateau. That's yeah. That, that's amazing. The way, yeah. way you pursued that and found it it's so cool and it's really cool how it turned out to be such an interesting story that you could write, write about interesting connection just for your context so I actually am friends with or I've, I've spent time with one of Bill's teammates from MIT when they played in the oh, yeah. 
Um, oh no! And he was. He, I think you spoke to him. You, he was quoted in the article. Jimmy Barlotta. Jimmy. Yeah. yeah of course. He lived yeah. down here in Denver, and he actually That's took right. took our team my senior year on a hike. And so, yeah, when I read Jimmy's name in the article, I was it was kind of funny. <laughs> like, yeah, I know that guy. Um, so anyway, That's yeah, cool. you go briefly into how how basketball became um, so popular in Tibet, and it, it was surprised me that it started as long as you said about a hundred years ago. Do you want to just tell me a little bit about what you know about how Tibetans became so interested in basketball and how that's grown in recent decades? Yeah, sure. So that is something that is probably not known, you know, at least before the story to anywhere to anyone because no one's ever studied it or yeah. like looked into it, you yeah. know. Um, I had assumed that basketball had just arrived in – in um, on the Tibetan plateau, in the maybe the 90s or the 2000s, when 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 social media and TV it had, had you know started kind of um, getting big, yeah. but yeah, but but basketball arrived. I, I looked into old kind of Chinese um, uh, government records, mm. um, which which have local histories of a lot of these different kind of areas and. Basketball arrived there around 1915, 1920 or so. It could have been earlier with missionaries, but most likely it was around. I was finding tournaments that were being played, athletic tournaments that were being played in major cities on the Tibetan plateau around 1920 or so. And um, these weren't ordinary Tibetans in remote areas. These were probably kids of government officials and. Um, um, in more mixed kind of Chinese Tibetan borderland areas. In 1935, I found um, the um, central Tibet, which would be headquartered in Lhasa, sent a team to the Chinese national games in Shanghai. Mm. But they didn't, according to these records, they didn't get there in time for the tournament because uh, we don't really know. There, there aren't very like many details about that. But I know that from Lhasa to Shanghai, it would have taken many months on horseback if they had gone in that route. It's an incredible detail um, that they that uh, they had they were going to make that trek with a basketball team back then. I would have never have guessed in a thousand years. Crazy, yeah. yeah. I mean, it would have taken months, and and there was an alternate route which would have been which would have been across the Himalayas by rail in through India. I don't think this is in the story. Hmm. By train into India, I believe, and then by boat to Shanghai. That that could have been an alternate route, but there are I, I looked really hard and and have yet to find any kind of like details on that. Mm. But um, so yeah, so 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 you have that kind of historical kind of tidbit. Um, I tracked down an old Tibetan man in his I believe he was in his eighties, living in Wisconsin, um, mm. and he used to attend basketball matches in Lhasa. They call them matches there hmm. uh, in the 50s. And these were right in front of the Portala Palace, the Patala Palace, right? Hmm. The Dalai Lama's residence. I think I may have mispronounced the palace. But hmm. um, huge kind of festival-like events with ordinary Tibetans would show up and monks and aristocrats and military officials would attend. Wow. And the sparkling palace like in as the backdrop and um, food vendors all over the place. I mean, he described this extremely vivid, 
picture and they had man they would manicure the court the dirt court at dawn right hmm. um they played on and they were very kind of highly organized games um and so clearly so so basketball was 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 big there they now the sport doesn't seem to have become um popular or or have arrived more permanently in rural or nomadic areas which is where i was until the 60s hmm. um, and um at that time i, I actually read that, that nomads um there were nomads who would carry portable hoops with them from like one pasture to another because what they do you know because nomads they go up the mountain in summer to their summer pastures mm-hmm. at higher elevations and then and then um to the bottom of the mountain essentially in winter for their winter pastures and they would carry the hoop around from pasture to pasture mm. so it would be and so by then you know basketball had really become a staple of village life across amdo and kam amdo being north the traditional northeastern region of tibet which is where i was mm. and kam is eastern tibet so since the i'd say probably the 70s big village festival festivals all you know, pretty much include will include and center around a basketball game. Wow. Okay. Um, yeah, it's like it's like they'll have maybe tra- more traditional Tibetan sports, and this actually goes way back decades earlier. But you'll have you know more archery, horse ra- horse horse racing, um, which are more traditional Tibetan that go back centuries, mm-hmm. and then there'd be basketball, wow. right? And young men who are who are who are the best players in the village would become popular with the women of the village. You know what I mean? It was like a, and then more recently it's just exploded since I'd say uh, television came into the plateau starting probably in the nineties. Mm-hmm. Um, that's when the first TV started arriving and then iPhones internet about a decade later when through Chinese media, you, you know, these, these, Tibetan kids in remote areas are watching NBA games. They're watching and they're watching highlights of Kobe Bryant, who's him and LeBron James. Where when I went, where their jerseys are everywhere, monks, nomads, yeah. they all they have, Kobe jerseys. Uh, wow, that's amazing. And you said there was big billboards in the, the, that final gymnasium of Huge. Um, Kobe and LeBron. Is that right? Yeah, yeah. So their heroes are, you know, obviously my hero was Michael Jordan. But yeah. they didn't have really television, you know, in the '90s. So, or at that period, so it's Kobe. Kobe is like their wow. hero, and 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 now LeBron. And so, um, and so that so anyway, so the, so new media just took that that whole thing to a different level. Yeah, that's amazing. Well, let's um, let's introduce. You know, you're gonna have to help me with the pronunciation here, but is his sure. name uh, Dugia Bum? How do you pronounce that? Yeah, Dugia. Well, that's actually a struggle for me too. Yeah. The name because the head coach, Willard Bill Johnson, um, he always called him Doogie Bum, and so I just called him Doogie Bum. And I'm, I, I think I may be more like a kind of a nickname that he. Okay. He calls him so, uh, but yeah, I call him Doogie Bum. Well, Doogie, so if I, you're if you're listening and we're butchering your butchering sorry. your name, we apologize, <laughs> but yeah, we'll, we'll, go with, we'll go with Doogie Bum for now. Um, so let's, yeah, the story kind of revolves around him in some ways. So let's, why don't you just tell me a little bit about him and maybe some of how um, basketball helped him kind of find. It's really beautiful. Helped him find purpose and kind of turn his life around. Yeah, absolutely. So as you mentioned, you know, Doogie Bum is is. Um, 
a probably the main character in the story. He is a um, when the story kind of begins, he's he's a, a teenager, you know, early twenties, and a, a yak herder comes from. I mean, all the all these families are are nomads, and he was just kind of aimless. He dropped out of school at sixteen. He, you know, kind of just lacked direction in his life. Um, he and his family considered a bunch of um, options for him for his future and. Around that time, this company called Norla had opened up a workshop in the village. And Doogie Bum's grandfather, who appears in the story, um, helped him get a job there. Mm-hmm. So he goes to work, Doogie Bum, in this in this um, workshop, and he's just really irresponsible. Mm-hmm. He's really immature. He'd sneak away, smoke cigarettes, when he, you know, which wasn't allowed. He would take food that he wasn't supposed to. He didn't have much of a work ethic. He just, he really didn't know where, where he was headed in life, right? Yeah. Um, and and he was among a group of young men in the village who played basketball after work, mm-hmm. okay? And he was naturally very talented, okay? Mm-hmm. But kind of flashy and undisciplined and, and, and raw. Yeah, I think he said um, uh, that Bill, yeah. when he first, his first impression of, Doogie was not positive that he was wearing flashy <laughs> clothes and kind of arrogant and stuff. Yeah, he was just cocky. Yeah. <laughs> cocky because before Bill had arrived to to instill kind of some discipline in a more traditional, in our Western world, you know, um, structured program, Doogie Bum was the stud player of this village, right? Yeah, yeah. And he was like really just really athletic naturally and – um, as a result, he, he, you know, I think he probably got a, had a big head about it and yeah. he, a good kid, you know, not like a bad kid at all. Just like, um, and so when, when Bill Johnson, the head coach arrives, um, he didn't like him. <laughs> yeah. Maybe, maybe we should pause just for a second to briefly sure. bring up, um, who Bill Johnson is and I, yeah. you can correct me if I'm wrong. I, I don't want to derail you, but so Bill Johnson played at MIT um, he was a bit of an eccentric guy, you know, did, had, took a different path than many athletes take in the U S seems like a really cool guy in my opinion, but he, so then he found his way to Tibet to coach these, uh, these players. And how, how did he end up getting there again? I forgot. Yeah. Right. So you mentioned Bill, who's this, uh, maybe I should talk about him a little bit. Like, his, yeah, let's, um, let's, let's plant a flag and we'll get, we'll get back to Doogie. Yeah, sure. So Bill Johnson is is one of the I'd say two main characters of the story. He's, he's this six eight six foot eight American guy mm-hmm. with a beard, long shaggy hair, uh, who was kind of a, a say a basketball nomad of sorts. He had played college basketball at MIT, um, and then played um, semi professionally all over the world. I mean, mm-hmm. he really bounced around Costa Rica, Iceland, uh, Cape Verde. Australia wasn't really paid much, you know, and sometimes not at all. Okay. But he just loved the game and he had a kind of a, this very goofy side, but also intellectually and uh, philosophically and spiritually curious and a, a good heart. I can wait for the Corona ambulance to go by. Gosh. <laughs> all right. I think it's the most, yeah, I think it's good now. Okay. Yeah. So, so anyway, so yeah, so he was just like a really, really good guy, really good heart, very passionate and knowledgeable about basketball. Right. Mm -hmm. But he didn't really have a clear plan or direction in his life. 
right? So mm-hmm. by chance on Facebook one day he sees a picture of a of a sort of like I I did, right? Sort of how I was introduced to this. Yeah. He sees a picture of a basketball hoop in this remote village, Zorge Rotoma. Mm-hmm. Okay, in on the Tibetan plateau, and he's determined to see it. He's like, I have to go there. Yeah. And he does. He becomes a. He winds up becoming a volunteer coach there. And and there, you know, there are details kind of leading up to that where he, I think the initial job opening was for a, a tutor, and he was way overqualified. But he he just kept persisting and um, said, I just you know I'll, I'll sleep anywhere. All I need is a bed. Right. Yeah. Just let me come here. So he arrives in this village. Right. They let him volunteer as a basketball coach. The six eight guy. Um, no one in this village had ever seen anyone tall, that tall in person, right? He's like a basketball god. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, everyone, first of all, assumes he's in the NBA, right? <laughs> yeah. Six, eight, he's, right? And they're like, they're like, this is it. This is like our, and so they're like, teach us everything, right? So mm-hmm. he starts holding practices, okay? Mm-hmm. Right? He's going to build like a real team, okay? And, and, and the whole thing's just a mess, right? His first practice, like, Guys aren't even wearing basketball gear. You know, they're they've got on jeans and and one guy's got on dress shoes and uh, another guy's wearing mittens. You know, yeah, like a business. One guy's got wearing like an old business suit, and they're just chucking up bad shots, not passing the ball. It's just like it's just a uh, you know, it's just a mess. And Doogie Bum is is one of the players there, and he's got this cocky kind of flashy attitude that Bill Johnson doesn't doesn't care for you know it's kind of like a me first kind of thing yeah um and um but that you know from that baseline you know the story is about how kind of slowly johnson's message of teamwork and discipline get does start getting through right they start buying the team gets better and better um so i don't know if you want me to expound on that but that's that's kind of yeah he enters you know yeah so after so correct me if I'm getting these details wrong, but if I remember right, the, they had training and it was kind of lackluster and haphazard in the beginning. But then when the heavy winter hit, uh, Doogie was insisting on individual workouts and he, him and Bill worked together in the off season, if I remember correctly. And then Doogie came back kind of a transformed player and person the following summer. Do I have that right? Or spring? Yeah. Yeah, totally. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, he, um, you know, bit, uh, right. That first, that first kind of those first few months were just, um, you know, really going back to back to ba- not back to basics, but just to basics. They never had any kind of instruction before, and so basic drills, and that progressed. And right, so as off as the. Um, first off-season approach, the first winter, Doogie Bum really, um, he asked for individual instruction. He um, just became a maniac in terms of working at his game. Something something had changed within him, right? Yeah. And the fact that there was this more uh, structured program, um, you know, previously they played in occasional tournaments. They would, but it would, it was just more ad hoc, you know, and there was no real end goal. Now Doogie Bum sees this, this person, this coach, this mentor who is, who cares about him and wants him to succeed and is teaching him values that are, that, that extend beyond 
basketball, as we all know, like, you know, that, that teach us things about, you know, work ethic and, and yeah, let me, let me whatnot. read what you wrote here. It says sure. in yeah. the, in the workroom, meanwhile, Doogie Bum's attitude had improved. He made eye contact with coworkers and talked more openly. Basketball, basketball had helped him find meaning. Uh, I'm going to butcher some more names here, so forgive me. Mm-hmm. Dechin okay. Yeshi, who called him yep. a model employee, told me. Yeah. By this time, he had also married, uh, Yo- oh, I'm not even going to try, Yomo Tso, <laughs> uh, the model who he had you previously mentioned that he was suiting at the beginning of the article. So it seems like, you know, he really, like, this basketball passion kind of lit a fire in him and helped him get on track in other ways in his life too, which I think is, is beautiful. And I, I, um, yeah. So one, one of the things that really struck me about the article is the, you could feel through your writing, the kind of passion and appreciation for the game Mm. in in ways that, and you played basketball and you were a fan growing up in some ways it felt refreshing after playing in American culture where so many of us spend so much of our careers kind of taking the game for granted. Mm. Like we, we get fed into this pipeline and <laughs> you know, you're, you're, when you're young, I remember having some of the same feelings that are described in this article of just like gratitude and joy and basketball was kind of this like divine activity that I, it was the best part of every day. And then as I got older, it became more about, you know, getting through this tough practice or workout, mm-hmm. you know, trying to keep my shooting percentage up, trying to get a scholarship, <laughs> like, you know, friction with my coach you know kind of waiting for my career to end in some ways and i <laughs> i actually ended up having a great senior season that was due to okay. a, quite a bit of luck um so yeah there's I mean, one more quote here just to capture yeah. some of that attitude you talked about how when um let me find it here oh yeah so when the when the girls were playing and mm-hmm. so they they also really enjoyed it and it helped them in life too it says you know um in September 2017, the Norla women played competitively in front of villagers in a three-on-three tournament organized by Johnson. Wearing light blue jerseys, the Norla players giggled each time they blundered and clapped whenever their team scored. And you can just you know contrast that with the kind of scarled or like the growls that many of the players in America have. <laughs> um, I just how did you notice anything similar in your experience covering the story? of um a different kind of attitude towards the game than you experienced in america yeah def- i'd say definitely yeah mm. yeah i mean i that that was that's that's like a, a i hadn't really thought about it specifically in that way how you just described it but mm. that's a perfect image to kind of like illustrate that contrast is that it was just pure seeing the the these young women you know even when they were blundering and actually they were, when they were, when they were making mistakes, when they were, when, if one of them, and I, and I should say that like, this is in the story that their, 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 their shooting forms were actually on average better, like more sound than the men <laughs> because they're right. Cause yeah. they, they, they started fresh. They worked with bill before they had developed exactly. bad habits. It was right? like really their first right. time ever playing. But, um, yeah. but it was, but they weren't right. They weren't. There was no ego involved, right? There was no like, yeah. I, I, um, thinking about their stat line or making a team, or it was just simply being out there and trying something new, and mm-hmm. um, 
overcoming a fear, which had been, you know, women in, in, um, traditionally in, in nomadic areas in Tibet, um, don't play sports or basketball. It's like chores from sundown from sun, you know, or sunrise to, to sun up. I mean, they're chopping wood and, and cleaning and cooking and milking, you know, the yaks and, um, mm. and so it's any activities that are outside of the family, you know, family situation or nomadic duties or even, um, you know, maybe an occasional religious ceremony or something, um, extracurricular stuff, hobbies are, are just not, you know, they're unheard of. And so yeah. when the women started having, the, when they really had their first opportunity to get out there and play and overcame their fear of, of, um, not being accepted. Um, and they, they were just like, it was just pure happiness. And, mm-hmm. um, and that then led to them growing in other ways is that, okay, well, if I can do this, then I can also, I can also, um, socialize with, with my friend, with friends outside of family, you know, and they start doing yoga yeah. and, um, but, but, um, and this applied to, I think to the men as well, um, in terms of just seeing basketball as like this thing that's supposed to be fun and like, like, um, what I experienced when I was just like a kid, you know? Yeah. Do what, what Doogie, the way he's described reminds me of when I used to like fall asleep with my basketball <laughs> in my bed and just like how, how I dreamed of playing. And it was, yeah, it's really, really yeah. striking that it looked cool to see. So you, why don't we just push forward with sure. the arc, arc of the story. So eventually, um, Bill decided to open up the team to people outside of this specific company, right? Right. And then, yeah, maybe you could talk about how it progressed into, you know, that built into that final tournament in the article and how um, some of the players are now being paid. So basically professional basketball players in Tibet. Sure. So, um, well, I could probably start here. I mean, most of the, as much improvement as there was, um, after um, more a more structured kind of program um, and film sessions and and weightlifting, which which uh, Bill Johnson introduced for the for the first time, you know, most of the team outside of Dookie Bum and Jahor, who's another one of the main characters, um, mm-hmm. wasn't really as commit. They just weren't as committed. I think um, you know the con- yeah. and the concept of an organized team it never existed to any of them. So in fairness, there yeah. were like cultural obstacles and obligations. Like a player would say, you know, I can't practice today because a, a sheep ran away from my family's herd and I need to get go help go find it, right? Yeah, that was that was a great yeah. that was a great detail too. Like, <laughs> or like one time like the whole team's like, sorry, you know, coach, we can't uh you know, we can't practice today and, and Bill Johnson's like, Oh, why not? you know, and they're like, Oh, we well yeah, we there's this these scary dogs are loose in the village and they're, they're terrifying everybody and we need to chase after them and corral them, <laughs> you know? Yeah. <laughs> um, and, or like once there was a, um, for religious reasons, they had to, um, circumambulate uh, the monastery all night. They'd been up all night, which is a Buddhist ritual for, I think for kind of like for making merit, right. For, for, for accumulating merit. And so there were all these, you know, kind of like duties and obligations. So, so Johnson set, mandatory attendance rules 
but these weren't really followed yeah at least in the sense of what we're accustomed to in in like with the pipeline as you're talking about right the strong more structured western kind of um yeah there's pros through yeah there's pro there's pros to that that pipeline as well absolutely i mean that's that's produces better basketball generally right um of course but yeah. uh it was ultimately decided that johnson and Dechen, who runs the company mm-hmm. um decided they, that they would open up the pool of players not just to norla employees who had who were pre- previously um comprising this team right but also to villagers okay Mm-hmm. who didn't work at the company because there were a lot of nomadic men, young men in the village who really wanted to play, who were good, had, had talent, but they, who didn't work at Norla, right? Mm-hmm. So what happened is they created this semi-professional program um, in which you know, this really like improved the talent level of the team. And it was decided they were going to start pl- paying players a salary. There was a few full-time players, including Doogie Bum, uh, part-time players, and then they also had a practice and development squad. Um, and mm. the reason why they did that was because um, Dechen, the head of the company, um, saw the the value that basketball was having, not only on the court, in which um, the team, you know, there are tournaments throughout the plateau in which you can win ca- basically cash prizes if you do well. Okay, mm. so that money would come back to the to the to the company, but also um, also like just building kind of teamwork and and ve- these kind of these skills, life skills that that sports help with, right? And so so that they opened up the team to other players. And um, what was your kind of your next? Sorry, I think I was kind of rambling a little bit there. <laughs> no, 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 you're you're right on track. I just yeah, well I'll, we won't. We'll leave some of the important details to the to the reader because I think that in order to really get the full story, I encourage everyone listening to read the article too. But maybe if you just want to um, talk about the way the article finished at the final tournament, or however any other details you want to include. Sure. So um, so there was a tournament, a, a big tournament, teams uh, of all monk teams and and all nomadic teams. Um, and so this, this uh, Norla team, which is now kind of um, new and improved, okay, with, with, had now been opened up to nomads in the village, okay, mm-hmm. went to this tournament and they started winning. They won, I want to say, three games to get to the final. Um, mm-hmm. And... For the championship game, um, and this would happen for all big matches there, is the players would head up to the sacred mountain peak in the village and make like offerings of like sugar and barley to the mountain god that protects his village. Right. And mm. it would sh- I think they'd go up there in motorbikes. They'd shout, you know, victory to the gods. Right. I mean, yeah. these are traditions that, that, from my understanding, really predate Buddhism coming to that area. Okay, this is like goes way back. Um, oh, really? Yeah. Wow. Yeah, these are so much of this village empties out. I mean, there are essentially a parade of, of vehicles that that accompanies the team to this tournament, and hmm. the the um and they play in this kind of packed gym, and the villagers who did remain, 
back in the village, watch the game on a video feed. A lot of the big games are shown on social through social media. They're streamed. Wow. Okay, so you have so imagine this. You know this remote village in Tibet at 10 p.m. and up in the in the hills, the monastery up in the hills, um, um, in all of the kind of clan areas scattered um, on different sides of these big mountains in these um, homes you have like families like gathered around it's like a Hoosiers kind of scene right you have families gathered yeah. around smartphones watching this this game which was um, which was um, nip and tuck you know went down to the kind of like the final moments and I can I guess I can leave the the uh, final result for the yeah, because the, the the last few paragraphs are really, really beautiful. It's a great right. way to close yeah. the story. So you can read the, um, let the listeners read the end of it. So yeah, I mean, it's amazing. And so do you know, have you kept in touch with anyone there? I it just, it's so, it's so amazing to me <laughs> that, um, that Doogie, as the article left off, was getting paid, you know, much more than he had been getting paid for his normal right. work to play basketball. So basically he achieved the dream of what so many of us would want out of life is just like to make a living or to like be sustained by working on our games and playing basketball. I just think that's amazing that him and, you know, some of the other players got to do that. Have you, have you kept in touch with anyone to see how it's been since then? Yeah. So I've, I've, um, kept in touch here and there with, with, with Bill Johnson, the coach, um, Mm -hmm. just to kind of see where, you know, how things have been going. Um, so, you know, again, like it, it doesn't mention the story, but his, you know, his aspirations had been Johnson's had, had been to essentially build a team so good, so well respected that the plateau's best players would come to Zorge Rotoma, which is the village and train them and then return to their home villages as sort of player coaches and then teach the game which would really then elevate the level of basketball throughout Tibet. Cause there are no coaches. I mean, that's, yeah. there are no coaches on the plateau really, or very few. It's, it's, um, and he was like the first one really. And so from what I understand, what he, what he, he's told me is that there's been some success with that. The team has become very well known across the region. Um, mm. and Norla has been able to bring in some, some, some really excellent players, you know, from outside the village, from elsewhere in Amdo. Um, mm. although I think some of them, because they were kind of like worshipped as, as like great basketball players in their, in their towns and villages, their, their egos maybe s- sort of created challenges to, to sustaining like a team oriented program, which is what Johnson was, was trying to kind of create. Same problems in the NBA. Yeah, <laughs> exactly, exactly. So, but but um, so they've been able to like recruit or 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 through their own through the, the team's own uh, you know popularity, um, bring in some like pretty some some good talent. I know now a lot of things are at least as as of a few months ago. I think on hold just because of the coronavirus. I mean, I understand that oh, everything right. was shut down, right? Um, basketball included. So I, I'm not sure where that stands now. If if there, that's opening back up yet, um, right? But at least there. But he's still doing it. He's still there, and it's still going on. That, I'm glad to hear that. That's awesome. What a cool thing he's 
pursuing. Um, that's that's amazing. Uh, another question yeah. here. So I'm I have um, an interest and a passion for meditation, mm -hmm. and you bring it up in the beginning of the article. Uh, let me just you write nicely here about um, some of the similarities that you see between um, you know in the beginning of the article why you even put these two things together there's you said I'd loved the sport since childhood the sport meaning basketball and had recently become and recently become fascinated by practitioners of Buddhism mm. and while the pairing may seem far-fetched it made a certain sense to me devotion to the sport includes countless hours in the solitude of echoing dimly lit places rickety old gymnasiums empty playgrounds driveways late at night where one undergoes a genuinely meditative sensory experience the rhythmic bouncing of the ball the mental focus and repetition essential for knocking down free throws mm. the visualizations such as imagining oneself sinking a last second shot so yeah that those similar similarities are perfect and i something that i've experienced too and for me the practice of meditation helped my game and my my mind mm -hmm. on the court mm -hmm. in ways that i never thought were possible it's just a direct link between mm -hmm. you know quieting the mind and performance and enjoyment on the court and then throughout the article you mentioned briefly that mm -hmm. um like bill was training while he was training like they go on runs and then he'd meditate with them mm -hmm. and i know um that the players on the team, as it standed in the article, at that point it was nomads, and the monks had too busy of a schedule to play. Yeah, I'm, I'm just wondering if meditation was integrated into um, what you experienced there. Were the players ser serious about meditation, or is it just the monks? Um, mm -hmm. is, did Bill implement that at the team at all? Was that was that a part of the story in any way? Um, I'm not sure about that. I I. Um, I know that it was he integrated it into the practices and training. Um, mm. I'm not quite sure how central it was or what role it played. Um, I mean, yeah. I can talk about, you know, I, mean, I definitely have some thoughts on on the connection between basketball and meditation. You know, I mean, I, I, I have actually thought more about it since I wrote the story. Um, sure. Let's dive into that. So, I mean... Uh, you know, first of all, I mean, I think all sports are like meditative, you know, and that they bring, as you know, I mean, they bring you kind of fully into the moment, you know, this is, these are things that I've just yeah. been kind of thinking about, you know, as an athlete, I mean, if you dwell in the past or like look ahead or you're going to fail, you know, yeah, you're going to be you're more likely to fail. Yeah. Yeah. With the task before you. So like, you know, I mean, in our ordinary lives, I mean, you can get away with kind of drifting off mentally while you're walking around, you know ignoring sights and sounds around you although like right now walking around manhattan it's actually that's actually sort of meditative because i have to be extremely you know it's like social distancing it's like being extremely aware of who and what's around me you know what i mean <laughs> yeah you've got to be mindful of mindful. not scratch scratch your ear when you're out in public <laughs> right right or touching right it's like touching my face right it's like okay, yeah now i'm I'm very cognizant of that. But like when you're playing sports, you can't do that. Basketball specifically, you know, the more I've kind of thought about it and read about Buddhism, you know, really the more Buddhist, and this was also touched upon in the story, like the more Buddhist like basketball kind of seemed, you know, mm -hmm. and forgive me, like 
is at least based on my maybe ignorant understanding of Buddhism. <laughs> no, yeah, I mean the and I I've I'm not I'm no expert in Buddhism. I am a very diligent meditator and cool. played you know high level basketball. But yes, yeah, so the the relationship between the Buddhist philosophy, I think the Buddhist philosophy is one that players could adopt and see great benefit and it certainly helped me and maybe there's different types of players mm. like i had teammates who you know i tried to follow the the path that many of my teammates followed for how to mentally prepare it was like loud music mm. it was po you know positive thinking it was swagger mm. and for me that just never seemed when i got to the higher levels of sport that didn't seem to work for me for me i had to learn how to quiet my mind and yeah adopt a similar mental stance that i did on the meditation cushion huh. of paying clear attention to experience without you know pushing away what's unpleasant and grasping at what's pleasant in basketball that means like you know not being too excited over a few mm -hmm. makes or not you know getting pissed at myself over a few misses <laughs> it's more like becoming a little bit detached from experience and allowing yourself you know, on the meditation chair, you kind of allow experience to unfold. And in basketball, you're allowing, you know, you, you already know how to make open shots, you know how to play. Mm. A lot of times you're just in your own way. So if you can just kind of get out of your own way by paying attention rather than trying to force things, mm. I noticed that having great benefit. And unfortunately, you know, my career ended right as I was discovering this stuff. Oh, um, okay. And lately I've been thinking I need to get into some kind of competitive realm again, like Maybe I'll take up jujitsu once once we get a vaccine or something, so I can put these skills to the test. But I know I think you're right on. I think you're spot on, and and the, the similarities are clear and in all kinds of performance. But there is something about that rhythm of basketball that perhaps we're biased because we're big fans and we've played. But it does seem like this constant flow of activity that other sports don't capture. Maybe maybe something like soccer does, but. Um, from the major sports in America, like I don't, you don't get that that same flow in baseball or football. Yeah, no, definitely not. Like I, yeah, they're they're, and the team aspect too. I mean, have you, you know, if you've read Phil Jackson's book Sacred Hoops, that just kind of comes to mind. Definitely, yeah, it's a great book. Yeah, yeah, it's like the old tri triangle offense, you know, which the Bulls ran mm -hmm. in the '90s. You know, it's like, um, based on. It's, you know, constant motion, fluidity, ball and player movement, you know, and um, the, just the idea of like giving up your, or tamp, at least tamping down your own ego for the sake of, of the team. You know? Yeah. And when, when the Bulls started winning, it was in part due to the fact that Michael Jordan really bought into the triangle offense, if I remember correctly. I mean, that's before my time, but um, <laughs> that's... Um, yeah, that's. I think the the similarities are, are quite clear. Um, so yeah, one one last question if you yeah. have time. Um, so this is just out of curiosity about. So, did you interact much with the monks in Tibet? I'm actually I've done a bit of practice in the Dzogchen tradition, which is oh. originates from Tibet. Okay. Um, do you did you interact with them much? It was there. It sounded like in the article that their schedule is so busy that they couldn't be on the team yet. Is that just because they're in meditation or silence all day? What what were the mm. monks like that you interacted with? Yeah, in Tibet. Um, you know, I I didn't get tons of time with the the monks kind of individually to speak with them. Um, okay. Like you said, 
yeah, like you said, the their schedules, and this is a reason why they um, and and Johnson um, in his in an effort to to recruit and bring the best players in, on the Tibetan plateau to the Norla team. You know, that includes monks because there are some excellent players. Um, you know, some of the best players into better monks and, mm-hmm. um, and, um, so yeah, so, so, um, but sadly to him, right. Their time is just limited because of their monk duties in terms as being students. I mean, they are serious the, the, from what I understand in the monasteries, they're, um, um, there's a fairly rigid schedule in terms of study and meditation and, um, and they play basketball where they can, but, um, the yeah. freedom in terms of playing ball is sort of, at least in Rotoma, the monastery there is limited to certain kind of like holidays. Uh, oh, really? Yeah. Yeah. So, mm. so my experiences with the monks were limited to some scrimmages essentially. Okay. Yeah. That's too bad that they can't play, but I guess, yeah, when you're that dedicated to your craft, it it makes sense. Yeah. Um, well, good. Um, I think that has about all that I had. Did we miss anything? Um, Mm -hmm. any important details or anything? No, I mean, I think, I think, uh, you know, we've covered a lot of ground. That was, that was great. That was awesome. A lot of fun. Yeah. Thank you for coming on. I'll have to read. What was the piece called about the legend in Jerusalem? Yeah. So it was in, so the, the publication is tablet and, um, it was either Jerusalem's basketball Jesus or, um, something along those lines. Um, well, in any case, I'll get a hold of that and I'll link to, it was linked to both articles in the, um, in the show notes and that'll be great. Where can, um, where can people find you online on, um, Twitter or Instagram? I can link to that stuff too. Yeah. Yeah. I'm on, I'm on Twitter. I'm, I'm not, uh, I'm not a huge Twitter guy. As you'll probably notice by my, my, uh, um, you know, number of, of followers. I don't really tweet at all, but I'm on there and I've got a website, louislazar.com with, um, some of my, some of my stories. Um, and, uh, cool. Nice. All right, Louis. Well, I look forward to reading that other piece, and let's uh, let's stay in touch. Uh, really, really great work in that on that article. It was really fun to read. So, thank you for coming on. Cool, Billy. Thanks. This was fun. All right. Take care. Take care. Okay. Bye. If you'd like to support the podcast, please consider subscribing to my newsletter, Sunday Sauce. Every Sunday, I'll send out a small piece of content that's related to the topics I'm researching and exploring on this podcast. It could be a quote or an image or a short video or a piece of my own writing. Just something small and digestible that I think is worth looking at. I'll also announce when new content comes out, so it's really the best way to stay up to date with what I'm doing. To subscribe, you can visit billyhanson.net forward slash sauce. You can also follow me on Instagram or Twitter, and those links are in the show notes. Other ways to support the show include leaving reviews on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen, sharing with friends and family, or posting on social media. Thank you for listening and for your support. It's a sauce.